0: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so delighted to be joined today by Lauren Groff. She's a two-time National Book Award finalist and the New York Times best-selling author of three novels, The Monsters of Templeton, Arcadia, and Fates and Furies, and the celebrated short story collections Delicate Edible Birds and Florida. Her latest novel is called Matrix. Lauren, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be on the show. Lauren, it just so happens that today is September 1st, and we woke up to find that the Supreme Court didn't intervene in Texas, um, where abortion is basically banned now. Mm -hmm. And and I guess I just want to say thank you for writing a book in which there are no male
1: <laughs> yes um not that i hate men obviously nope. i love them I don't um, <laughs> right. um but i do have to say these past few five i don't know th- 43 years have been um very <laughs> dominated by uh the opinions of men especially now right um the opinions of men, um, non-medical opinions of men and certain anti-woman women um, are taking away our bodily autonomy. They're turning women into objects by making them incubators for the state. There's nothing more horrifying than that. I, do, I mean, that is the most horrific thing I can imagine. So
0: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you. I feel like you wrote a book set in the middle ages with, we like to imagine that we have progressed far beyond (laughs) where our um, ancestors were.
1: I know, but right. The idea of historical progression is kind of a myth in any way. I mean, right. I mean, it's always, (laughs) yes, I think there are things that have gotten better. I mean, we have antibiotics now. Amazing. It's incredible. We have vaccines.
0: Um, yeah, vaccines, oh, if you take them. People, <laughs> so
1: many people choose not to partake of this amazing technology that we have, right? I mean, we have education um, for most, again, this is something that people are choosing in great droves not to actually partake of um, to their own detriment and the detriment of others. So, yes, history is, um, We are slightly advancing, and I I hope that the moral arc of the universe um, does bend toward light, Um, but who knows. Uh, I think that um, imagining that the past was full of simpler people is problematic, too. I mean, I think that um, humans are complicated no matter where and when they've lived.
0: And so I, I, I'm, I'm going to make you talk to me about etymology for a little bit. <laughs> because when I was reading Matrix, I realized that the title has so many different meanings, and, and ones that I wasn't entirely familiar with before I read your book. So tell, tell me about the title.
1: So yeah, um, it's funny because I think that even my husband can't say, Matrix, he has to say the matrix because of the canary for me, which was like foresaw yeah, for <laughs> that this is going to happen. I just wasn't uh, thrilled about it. Um, I thought I could just sort of brush it under the rug, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. Um, so, matrix is amazing, right? Because it comes from the Latin for mother and it's used in so many disciplines. It's um, in geology, it's sort of the bedrock in which gems are found. In organizational structures, it it is an organizational structure. Um, In sculpture, it is the original format out of which um, other sculptures are made. So for instance, um, once I went to Italy and I saw this mask maker and he took this leather and he just sort of folded it over uh, a face, right? And that face was the matrix for his masks. Um, So he was building these masks out of this original face. So it's just this incredible word that um, it does so many things, right? It, um, it, it talks about what we've lost without knowing it. Um, it talks about sort of the organizational structure of the Abbey. It talks about what it means to be an unwilling mother to other women. Um, so it's the only word that it could
0: have been despite the, the films. And then and then there's also the personal seal matrix, which I found yes. so Yes. Compelling. Yeah, that's the,
1: um the um sort of the the thing that people used to press into wax to seal letters, right? So and um in medieval abbeys, nobody was allowed their own, right? All of the uh, correspondence, all of the language, even the reading that people did was was for the whole community all at once. And so to have a personal seal matrix meant that you have privacy and privacy does not exist in, in these places, so.
0: And yeah, and that was, yeah, and that was uh, what a breakthrough for Marie. When you, when you, <laughs> <laughs> when you uh, aren't even allowed to read in silence,
1: yeah, or fear exactly. of
0: developing your own inner life.
1: Well, it just wasn't done. Like nobody knew that that was a thing one could do. It was like magic to read all in silence alone. <laughs> and now that's how we read, right? I mean, it would be very strange to go to school. Oh, well, I, I guess it does happen in certain schools,
0: but- Well, it's to my favorite to time in school, reading in silence. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, <laughs> curling up in a corner and hoping that the whole class forgets that you're there. <laughs> that was yes. my favorite time too, yes.
0: So, so tell me about Marie of France and basing very loosely, I think, this character, who um, you've created into this mythical creature um, based on two women from history? Yeah, um, so
1: Marie de France was an actual woman. She um, she wrote, she's famous for lay, which are these um, really fantastical, really interesting, basically short stories in, in uh, poetry form. And um, they're drawn out of threatened storytelling, and she situated them in Old French. So she is the first French poet, female poet that we know of, um, and she was a real person, but we don't know anything about her, really, I mean, there are suppositions, because she wasn't important, right, she wasn't a queen, and she didn't give birth to kings, right, it was the, the relational aspect of um women was the only thing important about them they were basically a little bit more important than horses at the time <laughs> or dogs um, so uh, we don't know if she was an abbess that, that there's a supposition we don't know if she was um like a bastard noble that's a supposition so i didn't have a whole lot to go on other than her own work and what i did was i, I um took her works and then made a list or a lot of lists of imagery um that came out of the works and then sort of that was my scaffold for a life. So I would try to, to originally create a biography just by linking these individual visions or these ideas that came out of the lay and the fables. And it created this sort of arc of a life, which I then went back and um, gave some read of So of course, now, Eleanor Elinor is a real person and yes. um, her movements were recorded because she was a queen who had been a queen of two kings, not just one. Um, King Louis um, in uh, the seventh in France, and then Henry um, the 2nd. The, the he was the second Plantagenet in England, and so he like she like leapt from bed to bed. The mythology of her at the time was that she was a wicked woman, right? Because she wore a lot of makeup, a lot of perfume she um in her court she develops courtly love which is in a lot of ways sort of an immoral form of love uh it, it's all about sort of fetishizing other people's wives <laughs> um, so so here's like this very famous woman and who was also kept captive by her husband for a very long time yeah. and this imaginary poet and um out of these two women, the story of matrix
0: developed tell me about Marie first as an inheritor of, um, or a, a, as as a woman whose relatives had been, female relatives had been crusaders.
1: <laughs> yeah. So there was actually, well, it's apocryphal probably, who knows if it's actually real, um, <laughs> but Eleanor of Aquitaine they said, had her own woman's uh, army in the second crusade. Um, she was a very young queen at that point. She was trying to make her mark. And so she just riled a lot of people up. And they were all riled up to begin with. But um, they said that uh, she she brought all of the ladies together and went on the crusade with this ladies' army. And they're this um, historical uh, mentions of these women in these silken white tunics with the Red Cross, which is the Crusader's outfit, with their hair loose and sort of flowing behind them, um, rushing down a hillside with swords. Right? It's, like the, it's just an amazing and inspiring image, and who knows if it's actually real. In fact, they say it's probably not, but I love that idea. It's real um, in your novel. <laughs> it's real in my novel! Yeah. I, compelling because it goes against everything that we think we know about
0: yeah.
1: the Middle Ages and women in the Middle Ages and the role of women. Um, there were female crusaders, right? They actually went and they fought. Um, Eleanor Rakuten did, and in fact, she was blamed for the failure of the Second Crusade.
0: So um,
1: <laughs> I really wanted Marie to be raised by a bunch of viragos, just yeah. like w- women who just did not fit in.
0: And then... It, it, it becomes so clear from page one that marie is not going to fit in to the life that she thought she would lead partly because she's not very feminine yeah not little she's, she's big Rough.
1: she's big she's like me she's rough she's like she's <laughs> She overflows boundaries, she like man spreads. Um, she's, yeah, she's too loud in all situations. Yeah, I feel very tender toward her because yeah. I've been there in the situation before. Um, yeah, she's not a woman. She doesn't mince so she doesn't wear slippers. Um, or when she did try, it wasn't good. She, she was unable to do it um, convincingly to be, to enact femininity like that. And I do think, I mean, there is a long history of women, um, people born female, who are expected to perform feminine roles, who just resist that um, from the beginning. Uh, and, and I kind of love that about her as a character, yeah. Yeah. Right? especially as an abbess who's like, the distillation of all feminine things in a holy woman um, and to have her sort of resist this, this role that was important to me.
0: Absolutely. And um, even just the idea of, I, we, we talk so much today in the discourse about taking up space. And um, yeah, it's it's wonderful to, to follow her on her journey as she learns <laughs> that that's what she wants to do. Um, but first, she she is sent to this abbey, um, where she she calls it a living death, which mm-hmm. which seems like, yeah, that seems like the worst version of exile that we can imagine. Um, and and it's she clearly has no options at this point.
1: yeah, if you were a woman, then, um and you had no family. Uh, basically, you are loose and um, set adrift in the world, and your only option was to become a prostitute. Right? That is basically that, or hope that some kind nunnery would take you in. Um, and that too is a is some in some ways a living death. I mean, a lot of women were there because they did have a vocation, and it was a very real. Sense of destiny and faith. Um, A lot of women were sent there because they were unmarriageable, because they were. um, They're uh, political prisoners, actually. So, uh, in a lot of raiding parties, especially in Wales, um, Welsh princesses were captured and sent to abbeys in order to keep them from having Welsh sons who would then rise up against the crown, right? You know, so. So um, I think a lot of times th- these these abbeys are both places of incredible freedom um, for women and um, prisons also, so they're kind of a gilded cage.
0: As an avid reader, I try to do my best to support the public humanities. That's why I hope you'll join me in attending Humanities New York's annual benefit event this year. Join New York Times number one best-selling author George Saunders, in conversation with author and professor Amani Perry for Humanity New York's third annual History in the American Imagination benefit. The live discussion will take place online on October 5th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Purchase your tickets at humanitiesny.org and use code MARISREVIEW for half-off membership tickets. That's humanitiesny.org and the discount code MARISREVIEW see you there. One of the things that I guess I hadn't really thought about that much, when you mentioned vocation, yes, like there is, it refers to a calling, a religious calling, but there's a a part in the book where you list all of the roles um, that women can play in the Abbey. And it's so much more than I had ever anticipated.
1: Yeah. Yeah, these abbeys were enormous, right? And a lot of them were very large and there was a great deal of business and a lot of them were incredibly wealthy. And um, in a feudalist society, the management of that wealth and the the production of things like linens or bread, um, Had to be done on the spot, right? There had to be, um, they had to grow the weeds and then do all the things to make it into bread, right? Um, So it's it's it was astonishing. These places are astonishing hives of business, and um, their primary purpose was not only to keep people alive; it was to inculcate religious religion and God. So there were different pathways for a lot of these nuns some of them uh, like the sacristan was purely responsible for just taking care of the holy relics and the and the church right like that was her job um and so a lot of the people the sub um people to the abbess and the prioress were called the obedientaries and um they were in charge of everything from the kitchener in charge of like cooking and, and, and in charge of the the servants who who cooked to um i don't even know like there there were infirmatrixes right Uh, the women who are basically the nurses who took care of even the old people on to death right so it's this this community where everyone got to play a very important role um and i think i long for that a little bit
0: (laughs) yeah and especially when When Marie first shows up, um, the nuns are very much in the throes of uh, suffering for for their religion. And when she has this epiphany that what if the women were doing what they were naturally good at and enjoyed, (laughs) that perhaps they'd be happier. Yeah, so isn't this amazing? There actually were places at the time where
1: if you enjoyed the work you were doing that was sinful, um, that, that the work was not seen as um, pleasure and or should not be pleasurable. Pleasure is seen with a great deal of suspicion throughout Christianity. Um, and the, but it doesn't make any sense, right? If someone is very bad at dealing with people, they should not be the person teaching novices. Yeah. right. the rules of this particular order that doesn't make any sense whatsoever so
0: one of the things I really love about the novel is that I was prepared for Marie to be broken to be beaten down by life in the abbey as it was when she was a teenager and you kind of breeze breeze by it and and I appreciate it tell me about that
1: I think um fucking narrative expectations is one of our jobs right Mm -hmm. and I think that that is the expectation when you go into this you want um, your characters to suffer but what if her life actually was um victorious in ways that she thought she wanted and very um not victorious in ways that she couldn't even recognize because of the, the systems in which she was born in the hierarchy she's internalized. So um, I think, th- I mean, to extend this, I think she doesn't recognize the harm that she does to her fellow nuns by keeping a lot of them ignorant, by forcing um, a lot of them who were born to the lower classes into um, lower class work, right? Um, so I, the, she, she keeps some of the mindsets rigid, um, which actually, because she's such a questioning person seems like a, a moral failure to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, I, I wanted to do something different than have her get her come up in. So I wanted her, um, her come up ends to be maybe gentler or from the side, and and from the reader's um, sense of irony as opposed to yeah, um, yeah, feet.
0: Yeah, and she starts out making some incredibly savvy choices. Everything from well, yes, uh, the economy of means <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe>. and. Um, <laughs> even just having copying services at the, um, in the Abbey that where where the women are the ones doing the writing. Yeah. And that seems mildly hypocritical. Yes.
1: I think hypocrisy is so interesting, right? Because um, often it, it's seen as we're lying to ourselves, but but I think that um, our lying to ourselves is sometimes so strong, we can't even see the lie. Right, right so sure. Like, yeah, so I think that people genuinely, almost universally think of themselves as good people. Um, and the external vision of goodness, um, or other people's goodness can be really distancing, right? Like, you can, you can see the actions of another person, like the, the Republicans in Texas right now. I mean, like, this is just pure evil, but I guarantee every single one of these people who are enacting this, like, truly tremendously retrogressive and awful um, law think of themselves as good humans. They don't see their own hypocrisy. Um, and I think that's a more interesting, maybe more subtle way to think about human nature than um, the bifurcated good bad that we are given from Twitter. <laughs> right? I mean, nobody is, <laughs> nobody is one thing. We're all just a massive writhing contradiction.
0: Absolutely, and, and yet Marie knows from even having watched Eleanor that um, what people say about you is is sometimes more important, <laughs> not morally, obviously, Lauren, but like um, in, in the scheme of life, more important than, than how you feel about yourself.
1: Yeah, that's also true, right? And you see this often too. I mean, what is a reputation, but the story told about you by people who don't know you, right, and so who gets to control that story is um, endlessly fascinating and a source of incredible tension. And even if I think sometimes those of us who are on social media, um, even if we think that we're representing ourselves in a certain way, other people will see us as the worst people ever. Um, And and their vision of your reputation, your uh, persona, uh, that you've projected forward is is at odds with your own. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: But some of the savviest people we know are are very good at shaping their persona. Oh
1: yeah. Who? I mean, come on. there are people who make millions of dollars yeah. on a persona alone. And persona is an amazing word too because it comes from I think the the Latin for mask, right? So it is just a mask that you throw up there. It's the hologram of yourself. Created um, out of uh, thousands of tiny images and ideas that may not be actually true. It's like these atoms sort of spinning outside of the body that create a separate body. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's, oh my God, it's so, so enormously fascinating. And it's not a new phenomenon in any way, right? Eleanor Bakwatin very clearly um created these um she she had these troubadours come in and she she supported storytelling in order to create her own narratives that would then go into the world and to all the nobles houses and the songs that were created within her court would would go out and seed ideas into other people's minds um it's astonishing right like she was the First Kardashian, uh, like she was a, she was um, one of these people who could just control her own myth. Um, I don't know how you do it. I think you just have to be. You have to have like triple vision somehow.
0: Yeah, that's like multi dimensional chess happening. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and so I love that so much of what could be interpreted as religious visions um, that that clearly come from the Lays are used in your novel as a roadmap for ambition.
1: I know. It's so funny, right? Um, so a lot of those actually came out of the actual visions of actual mystics of the time. So. Uh, mm. One of my favorites is Hildegard von Bingen. I right? like she's this extraordinary polymath. She was like a, a composer and really broke ground in composition. She was, um, she wrote this uh, medical treatise that was used for centuries afterwards. She was an abbess, um, but she had visions that happened after she went through menopause. So there was something very very real and deep, um, connected to the her, um. Physical fertility leaving and then her fertility for spirituality coming into her um, came to her. I believe 100% that Hildegard was getting visions from God right whatever God is whoever God is or believes that she was doing that at the same time. Um, she was able through the visions to create such so much power for herself right she was able to to use the visions as a spacing device in order to give her and her daughters and the abbey just the ground and money and power and the ability to make decisions for themselves. So, so visions themselves became a kind of storytelling, um, encoded storytelling because they're highly symbolic. And you have to be a genius to be able to sort of pull these symbols down and to sort of invest them into language and then disseminate them into the world and then create this power differential between yourself and these hierarchical powers of the church that are trying to keep you entrapped. It's so astonishing to me. I love the mystics, all mystics. I'm so into them. I think that they're incredible because they create a vocabulary for themselves that becomes the site of power. and it's really, I mean, well, so there's this Judith Butler quote that I, I was thinking of as I was um, thinking about this book. And it's, um, power not only acts on a subject, but in a transitive sense, enacts the subject into being. And I think that's what was happening with Murray in that she was enacting uh, power into being for herself, in, enacting herself into into being with through power.
0: Yeah, and I love that there is no hesitancy she there's never a moment when she says to herself what could this possibly mean (laughs)
1: right exactly right well i think that's the whole purpose of a vision it's the absolute certainty right it was given to me from god and therefore i am i am the the vessel for it and and need to
0: disseminate it to the world i love that and i don't want to give too much away why don't why don't we leave that for a moment and say (laughs) Talk to me about sex <laughs> in okay. the novel, yeah. <laughs> um, I, in terms of my readerly expectations, mm-hmm. I definitely thought there'd be more shame, more um, secrecy, more, I mean, there is secrecy, obviously, but um, it doesn't seem like uh, the be all end all of uh what one should and shouldn't be doing.
1: It's amazing, right? Because at the time the people creating um, the dogma for the church were men. And I think the understanding of religious men about female sexuality was such that they didn't actually believe women possessed it, right? So that sex didn't happen unless there was a penis involved. Um, so therefore, there's almost in, in some of my I, I read a, a number of books about this, but I'm in, sure you um, could. <laughs> I was so excited. I like I was like, oh, my God, um, it was in some of the, um, the the perceptions of men at the time, the idea of women having sex with women is utterly impossible. Right. Like that that there. It wasn't a sin because it was not even something that could happen right it was not in the realm of imagination right so it was external it was female sodomy at the time is what they called it but that you know that word itself doesn't make a whole lot of sense right so so um you do get these narratives throughout the middle ages of nuns with special relationships with other nuns right and and really loving um Long-term companionship uh, between sisters in in nunneries. Who knows what actually happened? You do right. also also see a lot of um, r- a very real shame about nuns getting pregnant, and that was the worst possible thing that could happen. A whole abbey could lose all of their power and their wealth if if that had been breded about in the world. Um, but you know, desire within the abbey itself uh, was often uh, not even seen. It just didn't exist, yeah,
0: <laughs> well, so thank you for seeing it <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of um, things that you see in in the novel, um, I was struck so many different times in many different places about your concern for the environment and coming climate change and our impact on our land and animals. And um, tell me about why that was important to you to include. Yeah, so,
1: um, one of the sort of, I I was going to say seminal, but I hate that word, (laughs) especially in discussion of this art. So one of the um, early impulses for this book was um, to engage with the contemporary world through a lens of history. I think um, for me in particular, just trying to engage um, with everything that's happening right now is coming so fast. It's so wild. It's so confusing. Climate change feels like this enormous issue so big that I don't I don't blame other writers for not wanting to look at it. And I don't blame people for writing, you know, love stories at the end of the world. I think that escapism is like lovely, um, but it's not what I want to do, right? Um, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't at the time that I was writing do it justice while writing about the rest of the political scene. I just felt that my, I was um, not able to to meet it morally on the ground that it deserved so i thought well maybe i could trace back through a millennium um, the roots of how we got to where we are i mean i really see that um the past and the present in this book are are very much in conversation and that's the reason why i wrote this book so that it can almost resonate back and forth so that um you see marie and the abbey Slowly encroaching on the, the natural lands around, out of greed in some ways. Right? she's she's growing the abbey. It's it's, it's some of her um, impulses are kind. Right, she wants to protect her daughter. She wants to um, put space between them and the the really patriarchal, awful world outside. But um, she does that by chopping down trees, right? By by burning those trees down, putting. Um, carbon in the air. Where there are humans, there's climate change, period. I mean, we are like rats. Um, we make things worse wherever we are. Um, so so yeah, so I think that also, I really, I don't know if I could ever write another book that's not engaging in some way with climate change. I feel like just for me as a writer, that would be um, a profoundly immoral choice. And um, I don't um, I just don't, I, w- I wouldn't, I think. Yeah.
0: I appreciate that. <laughs> Lauren, this has been so delightful. Before we go, would you like to recommend a couple of books for us? Mm.
1: So I'm gonna recommend books that I haven't read yet. I'm really excited about those, is that okay? Because I'm not recommending, I'm just saying I'm really excited about
0: them. Well, um, with that caveat, I think. <laughs>
1: Okay, I cannot wait to read. I haven't read it yet, but I have it. Um, Alexandra Clemen's Something New Under the Sun, Victoria Chang's Dear Memory. I thought her obit was an amazing book. It kind of blew my mind. The Vanita Blackburn's How to Wrestle a Girl's short story collection. I read um, one of her stories in The New Yorker recently. It was a flash fiction piece. It was really interesting. So I think that's good. Oh, Joy Williams, who is one of my trinity of living writers. Harrow is coming out. I haven't read it yet. I'm about to read it. I'm really excited. I cannot wait. I, I have it in
0: my pile. <laughs>
1: it's an amazing it's, cover,
0: right? Oh, it's great. That green. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much, Lauren.
1: Beyond a pleasure. I just love seeing your face too. It makes me happy. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.